you have your Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10. A Persian story tells of a hen, a mouse, and a rabbit who happily lived together, sharing a house in the woods and sharing the workload. The rabbit cooked the meals, the chicken carried the firewood, and the mouse brought the water from a nearby brook. Each was content until one day the hen met a black, busybody crow in the forest. The crow remarked that when the hen was doing the hardest part of the work, and the rabbit and the mouse, they had it easy. Try as she might, the hen couldn't keep from thinking about what the crow said and pretty soon became moody and irritable and bitter and angry. Eventually she spoke up, I do the hardest job around here. I think we should change jobs. The thought had never occurred to the rabbit or the mouse, but as soon as the idea was proposed, they too felt slighted. They too felt unappreciated and overworked. And with no time, everybody was feeling unappreciated and overworked. So they all agreed to change jobs. Each one individually hoped inside that the other two would apologize for not praising them more frequently. And would thank them for their hard labors. But since each one of them was waiting for the others to apologize and give thanks, no apology was ever offered and no thanks was received. After some discussion, the new tasks were agreed upon by all. The mouse would cook, the rabbit would gather firewood, and the hen would bring the water. The next day, the rabbit hopped into the forest and to gather wood and was eaten by a fox. The chicken fell into the stream and drowned. The mouse fell into a pot of soup and boiled to death. Selah. (laughs) There is a lesson there, if you think about it. We are saved by grace. God calls us. He draws us. All by grace. He helps us understand the gospel by grace. He adopts us into his family by grace. He even, if you aren't a believer, he gives you life and your common skills and opportunities and health and everything you have is all by God's grace. And then what often happens in the church is Satan, that black crow comes and says, you know, I think you're doing the hardest job. I don't think anybody appreciates you. No one's serving you. No one's giving you thanks. You don't have, you know, your name on the back of the pew. Maybe you should quit and find an easier job. And then they'll all realize how important you are. They'll apologize and thank you and feel bad for a long time because they didn't treat you like they should have when you were serving them so diligently. You ever felt that way? Only if you've served in the ministry. 
Yeah, that's a temptation, isn't it? Especially when you decide to do something with a group of people and the group turns out to be you. And you're thinking in your mind, okay, I'm going to go to church and do this thing for about an hour. We should all be able to get this taken care of really quickly because many hands make work light. And uh, you know that it's just going to be zips off and you'll be out of there. And you've got all these other things planned for the day, but you're the only one. But you think, okay, well, I better get on it. And so you start serving. And as you serve, you're waiting for those people to show up late who never show up. And so you stay late. And you miss out on all the things that you were going to do serving those people who didn't appreciate you. You see, we can forget and lose focus that it's the Lord whom we serve with our whole life. We are to do all things for the glory of God, not man. And when the Lord asks you to do something, you are to run the way of his commandments. To please Him. Even if nobody else is doing it. You're going to do it. Because you aren't here to serve men for the approval of man. You're here to serve God for His glory. But when we forget that. When we forget that God is the one who is to be glorified. That God is the one who saved us. That God has given us so many great things and that it is actually a privilege to be able to serve Him. Then, bad attitudes set in like a thick, dark fog. And pretty soon, we start having discontent thoughts and little internal self-pity parties. And I'm sure that we've all been there at times when we had certain things we hoped would happen and they didn't and it was harder than we expected and and we're looking for thanks and praise and we forgot that all glory, laud and honor is to be to the king, not to us. Well, if you've been here in the last several weeks, you have uh, heard a lot about forgiveness and rebuking and stumbling blocks, and we cover that in some detail. Um, but I just have something to just, it's just going to surprise you. That is not the main idea of the text. Jesus says what he does actually in verses 1 through 6, just for like a slow pitch So he can knock out of the park what he's going to say in the text this morning. I think what we're going to look at this morning is probably one of the hardest hitting texts in all of the gospel of Luke. I mean, he says some hard things in Luke. Luke tends to gravitate towards Jesus's hardest statements. And I think out of all the statements in Luke, this is probably the one Jesus hits the hardest. Jesus has already said, the stumbling blocks are going to come. It's inevitable. Woe to that person who is a stumbling block. But listen, if he, somebody sins against you, rebuke him. You know, get into the first step of church discipline. Rebuke him. If you repent, forgive him. Now that is, you know, something we should expect. It's kind of hard sometimes to rebuke people with grace and to confront them. And a lot of times they disagree. And so it can, it can be uncomfortable. But then Jesus said something that just absolutely blew him away. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns and repents, 
forgive him. I am sure that the disciples are sitting around going, say you're kidding. Say you're using hyperbole. Please. You see, they were trained up by the rabbis who said you only need to forgive three times. Now, Jesus is saying seven times. And what he really means is an unlimited number of times. And they, they're blown away by it. They are shocked by it. So you mean if somebody comes and insults me, I got to forgive them? And if they poison my hamster, I have to forgive them? They be fired from my job, I forgive them. And slandered me, I forgive them. And robbed me and forgive them. And tell else about me and I forgive them. Then poke out my eye with an ice pick, I forgive them. And one day, no more than that. Now, you, you know, to be realistic, that that's huge, isn't it? That is huge. I mean, you would like to think that you could do such a thing, but it just seems really radically hard. And that is why Jesus brought it up. Because it is radically hard. And this brings us to the threshold of our text because they are just, you're kidding me. Seven times a day? And of course, Jesus meant an unlimited number of times. And they're shocked. And then this is what we read for our text this morning. Luke 17, verses 5 through 10. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. From this text, I want to give you five attitude adjusters. These are those things you need to keep in mind when you're serving in the ministry so that your attitudes don't go bad in your service to the Lord. The first is a false assumption. Don't make this false assumption. What's that? Look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Jesus says, I want you to forgive. Not three times like the rabbis. Uh, just an unlimited number of times. You forgive and keep on forgiving those. And they're just saying, whoa, what are, the, what are they asking for? Jesus gives them this hard command. And see, this is the slow pitch. Jesus, Jesus is so brilliant. It's like he's God. Um, <laughs> he's, he gives this slow pitch to them. And, and their response to this very hard command is, we can't do this unless you give us more faith. No one could obey a command that hard unless you were to give them more faith. Well, look at verse 6, where Jesus responds to the request for more faith. 
And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, did you see that? Do you see how Jesus responded to their request? You don't need more faith. If you had mustard seed size faith, that would be sufficient. And this is, this is the big lesson here. The big lesson is, it's not the amount of faith that is so important in obeying the Lord. It's the object of faith. You see, if I, I could be a Buddhist and, or a Mormon or a Muslim or a Jehovah Witness or an atheist, and I could have a lot of faith in my system, but it doesn't give glory to God. It doesn't do me any good. There are a lot of people who have false views and believe in false religions who have far more faith than a lot of Christians do in the true God doesn't help them. Why? Because the object of faith is the most important thing. Because a teeny, leany, little bit of faith, just a little microscopic speck of faith in an all-powerful God is sufficient for you to obey all that he has commanded you. This is why doctrine matters. If you place your faith in the wrong God, the wrong Jesus, even if Bible verses plucked out of context are used to support the wrong God and Jesus, you perish in hell. But if you have even tiny little bit of faith in an all-powerful God, you get two things. One, salvation with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And two, the almighty God on your side. And that is sufficient to do all that he has commanded you. And Jesus illustrates this. When he says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted the sea and it would obey you. Now, they, now, you probably have seen mustard seed. It's small. There was a picture up there on the screen. Sure, you saw it. It's just small little round yellow beads about the size of the head of the pin. I mean, it's little, right? And so think about this. Now, if you have little mustard seed, just think of one little mustard seed side faith. There's a Jack Hughes's faith. Can you see it? Okay, if you're over 40, can you see it? <laughs> You've got this little tiny little bit of faith, this little bit of mustard seed faith in the all-powerful God. See? That's the deal. You hear people talking about you need to have faith, but they never say what. Oh, we need to be, have faith. You know, when there's some crisis in our country, we need to be people of faith. In who? Oh, well, just have faith. Well, faith in faith is worthless. But Jesus says, if you just have that tiny little bit of faith, that little speck, that little dab, you could say to this mulberry tree. Now, you need to know a little bit about mulberry trees. Mulberry trees have the most extensive root system than any other tree in Israel. They even had regulations, the rabbis did, that said, if you plant a mulberry tree, it has to be twice the distance away from a water cistern than any other tree because the roots are so pervasive and so extensive that they would infiltrate and just clog up and drink up all the water. 
The rabbis also said that mulberry trees could be cut down and 600 years later, their roots would still be in the ground. Think about that. Our country's about 200 years old. 600 years, you're digging? Oh, there's a root here from 600 years ago. That That's a long time. So Jesus, when he says, you would say to this mustard, this milberry tree, he, he's talking about some tree. They're probably all looking at him. Just picture in your mind here, picture in your mind, just see it there, this old, gnarled, twisted trunk mulberry tree. You know, it's about two foot around or three foot around at the base and it's got roots that are poking out of the ground and it's just this big, gnarled tree. And Jesus says, now if you've got just a tiny little bit of faith, you could say to that mulberry tree with that extensive root system that it's just clinging into the ground and hanging on the boulders and then digging into all the crevices of the bedrock way down deep, be plucked up and planted in the sea and it would obey you. I don't know about you, but I would like to see that. You know, you couldn't do that with a backhoe. You would need some significant piece of equipment, like one of those gigantic cranes. Let's just say you had one of those gigantic cranes and, and you know, you had them bring it down. You brought this huge, big steel cable and you wrapped it around the trunk of that thing and cinched it up and said, okay, pull it out. And you step back and you just see that crane begin to strain and the the cable crushing. You hear the crackling of the bark around the trunk of that tree. And the wire, the big cable starts singing like a piano wire. And there's this big tension. You think, man, it's not going to be able to do it. And all of a sudden you see the ground begin to start to bulge up. And pretty soon, pop out this giant root system pulls out. There's still big rocks underneath the tree that the roots are hanging on to. That would be impressive. That would be impressive, wouldn't it? And then, really fast, unexpectedly, all of a sudden the crane jerks and rocks and dirt are flying everywhere. And you hear this big whoosh as the tree begins to go through the air. And all of a sudden it casts it like a fishing pole. You see that they go out, man, it's into the sea. That would be amazing. And Jesus said, now if you want to see that, you need that little speck of faith in the all-powerful God. In other words, you don't need any more faith to do what I tell you to do. You just need to have the right faith in the right God. And that is sufficient to do whatever I ask you to do. That is this, the principle in the text. Another principle is that when you have even a little faith in a all-powerful God, you can do huge tasks. And, and thirdly, that God, you can see God do great things even with a little faith. All those things can be extracted out of there. The question is, do you believe that? Do you have faith in that or not? I think a lot of us, have hearts, and in our hearts, doubt reigns. You know, we, we look at things and just say, you know, I don't know. I don't know if God can do that. He spoke the universe into existence. Well, I know that, but that was in Bible times. 
These are Bible times. I got a Bible. What do you mean Bible times? I got a Bible. You got a Bible? Bible times. But in our mind, we often think of, well, that's what God used to do. God used to be powerful. He used to do incredible things. He used to be that God. But now he's, he's hibernating. He's fallen asleep. He's passive. And surely he wouldn't do great things for me. Well, I'll tell you, he's not going to do great things for you as you doubt him. I mean, it is clear from the author of Hebrews that if we don't have faith and our soul shrinks back, he has no pleasure in us. No pleasure in us. This is the sin of doubt. I mean, some people have never placed enough faith in God to even see a weed pulled out of their garden. They look back on their life and go, well, uh, you know, if you tell them what incredible things have God have done to you, that you trusted God for, that you put him on the line and said, Lord, I'm going to do this. You got to pull through for me. I'm stepping out in faith here. And God did something. You ever have that happen? If not, you're just living by doubt, not faith. And if you struggle with anxiety and worry over the future, have faith in God. You struggle with lust, have faith in God. You worry about your finances, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Even a little bit of faith is sufficient. But at least have some faith in God. At least trust Him for those things that you can't see, that you can't grab, that are even impossible. A lot of times... We think, well, I couldn't obey God in this way because God is just, I don't know. I just don't know. I, I mean, I, need, I know I need to do this, but I just, I, it's just too hard for me. Increase my faith. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen? I had somebody actually point this verse out and say, you know, I just don't believe this verse is true. I said, that's why it doesn't work for you. No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Do you believe it or not? If you don't believe it, then you're not going to look for a way and you are going to get taken out by the temptation. If you believe it, you're going to look for a way. There's going to be a way. And even if you fall, you'll go, you know, I could have escaped, but I chose not to. If you know Jesus as your Savior and are born again, you have been you have been adopted into God's family. You've received the Holy Spirit because at least you have a little faith, right? If you are a Christian, you have enough faith. And that is the whole point that Jesus is saying. You don't need more faith. Like 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. There's 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 where it talks about all scriptures inspired and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training the righteousness of the men or will of God may be equipped for every good work. Every good work. There is not a resource problem with God. He's not saying, I want you to get out there, make bricks, but I'm not giving you straw. He's not saying that. He said, get out there and make bricks and I will give you the straw. I'll give you the backhoe. I'll give you a loader and a mixer. 
I'll supply everything. Just get out there and do it. Secondly, what you shouldn't expect as a slave. Look at verse 7. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? The answer is what? No master is going to do that. You're the slave. You are the slave. He bought you. He owns you. He's the master. You will do what the master says, obviously. I mean, you could just see it, you know? The slave comes in from the field and the master goes, here, let me serve you. Let me serve you. Say, pal, you smell. Man, you must have been plowing a long time in that hot sun because you are dirty and those sheep, whoo, they're, they're clinging to you. I just want you to know, if you've, if your only experience of sheep is what you see at the fair, those really aren't sheep. Those are kind of like, you know, sterilized sheep. You need to get out there and see a nice big batch of them cruising around in the wild when their wool is long and from about their halfway down, it's just dirt, just clinging pounds and pounds of black dirt is clinging to their wool. Then you understand what we're like. Sheep. And when you're tending sheep all day, that smell sticks to you. And it's pretty nasty. And notice here that Jesus doesn't say, when you've served me all day, when you've lived all day long for my glory, you can have the night off. You just come home and live for yourselves. As a matter of fact, I'll serve you. He doesn't say that. He says, no. Come immediately. Sit down. No. I'm not going to do that. No way. You got to realize when you're serving, you got to serve Jesus or you're serving Satan. There's only two people that you serve. You say, well, I serve myself. That's Satan. Well, I serve my idol. That's Satan. Well, I serve my job. That's Satan. You can only serve one master. Who's it going to be? Satan or Jesus? You say, well, listen, I am no one's slave. Then you're just deluded because you are. You just don't know any better. And sometimes when we're serving, quote, Christ in the ministry, we think Jesus owes us something. That he should be serving us but think about it think with me what is it that all sinners really deserve hell that fiery place we all deserve that right now so you are a sinner and you deserve hell and so god by his own will, not because of anything in you, not because of anything you have done, but because of his own good purpose, his own love, drew you to himself, chose you, granted you repentance, opened your eyes to the truth, helped you understand the gospel, redeemed you by the precious blood of his son, snatched you from the power of sin and Satan, give you uh, his spirit to walk in newness of life, spiritual blessings, all sufficient grace, all of that, right? Yeah, yeah, he gives us all that and more. 
And more is amazing still is after he has given us all those things, then he says, well, because I did it all and I gave you all of that and I equipped you and I give you all sufficient grace, I'm going to now reward you for all eternity because of what I did through you. And then we have the audacity to think that God owes us something. It is absurd. It's preposterous. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. If you fail to understand who you really are and what Christ has done, you actually think God owes you something? That he should be serving you rather than you serving him? No way. No way. You exist. You were created to give God glory. If you aren't fulfilling that purpose, you're not living for Christ. Just the way it is. Don't expect God to thank you because he made you and saved you from hell to do what you were created to do in the first place. You don't deserve it. Third, what should you expect as a slave? Look at verse 8. But will he not say to him, that is the servant who has worked all day plowing in the fields and tending smelly sheep and then come in from a hard day's work, exhausted. But will he not say to this servant who comes in ragged, tired, dirty, and smelly, prepare something for me to eat. Properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk. And then you can eat and drink. Notice the master says, get your act together. I want some food. And before you do that, just get some, get cleaned up, man. You stink. Get some new clothes on. I don't want you serving me like that. Give me something to eat. And after you tend to me and after I'm completely satisfied and all your tasks are done, then you can do whatever. Now, when he says, properly clothe yourself here i thought about this you know it's obviously why he would say that um because you know when you're working out in the field and you're tending sheep you're you're going to be dirty and smelly and when you especially when you do it all day long i mean you're like joseph remember what happened to joseph in prison he was there in prison for a long time right and then when the cupbearer finally got a clue and finally remembered when the pharaoh pharaoh had his dream that There's a guy in prison who can interpret dreams. I forgot to tell you about him. What'd they do? They went and fetched Joseph. Now, did they bring him there in his prison rags? And present him before Pharaoh all dirty and ragged? No. They cleaned him up. They put some nice fine linen on him. And then they brought him to Pharaoh. That's the same idea here. Surely we need to have our sins confessed before serving, right? I mean, you don't want to be serving God or trying to serve God if you have unconfessed sin in your life. Surely you'd want to pray before you serve, asking God to help you do what he has asked you to do so his spirit can be working in and through you. Surely you must clothe yourself with humility before serving, right? Surely if, you know, you're going to do some ministry that needs training, you would get that training. And, you know, if you're a teacher, you would prepare for your lesson. You need to do whatever it is to serve your king with excellence, right? 
Because that's what we all got to do because he is a great God. And we need to serve him with the best we have. I mean, let's say that, you know, some Saturday, I haven't done this since yesterday. I do some like really dirty project, you know, I'm ripping out a wall or crawling into the house, doing some plumbing or working on a car and I'm all greasy. I've got my gungy clothes on, my old ragged whatever. Now, what if I were to just like go into my house like that? My wife wouldn't like that. And I just said, you know, I'm sleeping in my clothes tonight. (laughs) Well, don't you think you should take a shower, dear? No, no, no. And the next morning I come up and I come to church all still dusty and greasy and grimy and dirty. And I just stand before you to preach the word. Because after all, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right? I mean, that's what you see today. A lot of people say, well, it doesn't matter how I prepare myself. It might not matter to you. But it matters to God. You don't come before God without your sin confess. You don't come before God without humility. You don't come, you don't serve God without praying, without being prepared, without, you know, being diligent to show yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. I mean, there are a lot of things we need to do to be prepared to serve God. You don't come before God when he says, before you do what I ask you to do, do this and not do that. I mean, why is it that you would dress up before going to a wedding? Why is it that you would dress up before standing before a judge in a court? Why would you dress up if the president called you up and said, Hey, I want you to eat, you know, have dinner at the White House. Why would we dress up? Would you go in there all looking nasty? No, you go, man, I'm going to the White House and wear my best clothes. I get new clothes, you know? Why wouldn't you prepare to serve the living God? The living God. You see what Jesus is saying here? Get your act together. I ask you to forgive seven times. You're saying, no, no, we need more faith. No, you don't. You don't need more faith. And by the way, after you've served me all day long, don't expect me to serve you. You know what I want from you? I want you to keep serving me. (laughs) That seems pretty hard, doesn't it? That's almost like God's God. I want you to keep your sins confessed. I want you to walk in the spirit, be humble, pray, get equipped and serve me more. After you've served me all day, then serve me all evening. But there's a lot of Christians today who have this idea that, you know what? I don't, you know, I can kind of segment my life and I have my sin over here, which I know about. But whenever I go do things for the Lord, I'm just going to kind of keep that sin kind of tucked behind me. And pretend like it's not there. And you know what? You can fool men, but you can never fool God. That's why David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You know, you think, okay, Lord, I I need some things. And God's up there going, la, 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 la. You know, he's not listening. And then you think, well, Lord, I know this thing's over here. We'll just not talk about that. But you know what? Look what I'm doing over here, Lord. Look what I'm doing over here, Lord. Look what I'm doing over here, Lord. Obviously, let me sing some songs to you. Let me serve you in Sunday school. Let me do this ministry. Let me do this thing over here. And God says, all of it's rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. You need to prepare yourself before you come to serve me. You don't 
come to serve me unless you do it my way. That's the whole idea here. Even after serving all day, you come, get prepared and keep serving. Fourth, what you should not think as a slave. So you shouldn't expect to be served, but you should expect to keep serving. And then what you should not think. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which are commanded, does he? And the implied answer is no way. The master's not going to thank the slave. You're kidding me. Shall I thank God because he made me and saved me from hell and drew me to himself and gave me every spiritual blessing and the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ and on and on and on and on and on. And I didn't deserve any of it. Should I then expect him to thank me for what he's done for me? That is backwards. The Bible encourages, mind you, to thank other people. We need to do that. We need to be grateful. We need to encourage other people, but we should never expect it. Because we don't deserve it. But what if I've really worked hard? We don't deserve it. But what if I've, you know, I have really labored for years in this ministry. You don't deserve it. You want to talk about what you deserve? The fiery place. That's what you deserve. That's what you deserved. I've seen people leave this church because... They weren't appreciated. Think about that. You know, I've been doing this for a long time and I just haven't got any thanks. Nobody's written me a card and, you know, haven't given me any recognition before anybody. And I just realized that, um, you know, I'm not needed here because I'm not getting enough glory for myself. So I'm moving on. Thank you. Move on. We are about serving the Lord here. Not ourselves. We're out giving Him honor and glory. Not ourselves. You know, Jesus paid it all. We sang it early. All to Him I owe. Think about that. We sang it. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin, my sin, left the crimson stain, but He washed me white as snow. So, so where does the thanks come from? It comes from me to God because all to him I owe. I contributed sin. He contributed salvation and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So I shouldn't go around feeling bummed that people haven't thanked me enough. I do not deserve it. If it comes, you know what? I Praise God. If you come up to me and say, oh, Pastor Jack, man, good servant, man. That was killer then you know I say praise God and if I don't say it out loud, you know what I'm saying on the inside? Lord, you did it. Five, what you should think as a slave and this is, this is painful. Don't expect God to serve you, serve him. Don't expect God to thank you because you obeyed him either. Look at verse 10. So you too, when you have done all the things which are commanded you... Now, I just want to stop there. Now, he's left the parable. He's not in parable mode anymore. He's left the parable. The parable's done. He says, so when you, all of you who are my disciples, if you know Christ, he's speaking directly to you. He's speaking directly to me. So when you have done 
all that is commanded. Forgive your brothers seven times a day and 70 times seven a day and every other command in the Bible. When you've done all of that, then what? You should say, we are unworthy slaves and we have only done that which we ought to have done. There it is. That is the Christian attitude. That's the attitude we all need to have. It runs so contrary to the fame-grabbing, power-grabbing, attention-getting, self-loving, glory-seeking mentality of the world that to just read it in the text, it almost seems wrong. It is. It's wrong according to the world, but it's right according to God. Because He created us to give Him glory, we shouldn't be whining because we haven't gotten thanked or served or received something because we have had the privilege of being saved to serve the living God who created us. Why would we think that we deserve something from that? I mean, why would we do that? It's just wrong. It's just wrong. You know, think about it. Let's just say, let's just say you're a commander in the military, you know, you're over in Iraq or wherever the battle's the fiercest over there in the Middle East. And all of a sudden, you know, you're getting a whole platoon sent to you from boot camp. And you're kind of excited because your guys are worn out and shot up and dead. And you want some more. And so all these young men come and they all look good and they show up and they get in, they fly them in and they all go and they eat. And the next morning they get up and they eat and but they never show up. They don't come when they're called. They don't do what they're told. They just say, well, we, we want to eat lunch next. Think about that. What, what would you think about that? You're the commander. You're saying, hold on a second. You do what I tell you. Listen, we only come from mess hall. It's like some Christians. They only come from mess hall. They come to be fed, to get filled up. That's all. They aren't in the battle. They aren't serving. They aren't giving. They aren't praying. They aren't doing anything. They're just taking up space and sucking up resources. That's not Christianity. That's being a traitor. I mean, what do you, what do you, what happens when you have some device that breaks? You, you say it's broken. You throw in the trash. You know, when the fig tree doesn't produce fruit, you cut it down and throw it into the fire. Everybody knows that. But we have this whole generation of people think, well, I'm a Christian because I don't do anything. I am a follower of Christ who doesn't follow Christ. What is that? That is delusion is what it is. It's delusion. Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. There's just this whole mentality today that, listen, being a Christian is just coming to mess hall. But it's not out there. I'm not going to share my faith. I'm not going to serve in a ministry. I'm not going to give to the Lord. I'm not going to do anything because after all, life is about me. Now, I'm willing to come on Sunday morning so I can get my fire, you know, insurance certificate. But you're not going to get one. If you look at your life, 
and you see that your pattern is not serving Lord, the Lord, please do not think you're a Christian. I beg you not to think you're a Christian. Do not have faith that you are going to heaven because I would bet you're not. Even people, Jesus said, who say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And did a lot of things, still ended up in hell because they didn't know Jesus. So how do you think it's going to fare for the one who says they have come to know him, but do not keep his commandments? It's not going to go well. And there's a lot of people in the church today, and I just, I just grieve for them because I know they know they're supposed to be serving, but they won't. I know they know they're supposed to be giving and reading their Bible and praying and living like a Christian, but they won't. They won't do it. But I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. No, you're not. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. You aren't following Jesus, you're following Satan, even if you come to church every week. And I would hate for anybody to perish from the porthole of a pew. It's just wrong. It's wrong to think that you could just come and be a Christian and just suck up resources and not serve the Lord. Oh, it is such a blessing to serve the Lord. It is so great to serve the Lord. It's such a joy to serve the Lord. It is so great. The best parts of life are serving the Lord. And if you aren't doing that, you know what it means? You don't know the Lord. You just know about him. And you need to give your life to Christ. You need to repent of your sins. You need to say, Lord, I am in sin and be broken over your sin and rebellion against God and give your life to Jesus and have him change you. And when his spirit comes inside of you, you become a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away and all things become new. Now, I wish they all became new instantaneously, but they don't. It would be great to give your life to Christ and all of a sudden you're perfect the next morning. It doesn't happen that way. And every Christian knows that. I'm not talking about that. But listen, you may still be a great sinner, but you're a saved sinner and you want to be perfect. You may not know everything there is about the Bible, but man, you're in the book trying to find out everything there is to know. You may not pray as much as you think you should, but you're praying. You may not serve as much as you think you should serve, but you're serving. You may not give as much as you think you should give, but you're giving. But if there's none of that in your life, I'm telling you, I am telling you, there is no hope for you if you die. I I would be lying against the scripture. I would be lying to you if I told you that you cannot follow Christ and get to heaven. His sheep follow him. So if you're sitting out there this morning and you're just thinking, whoa, you're scaring me. Good. I want you to be scared. I want you to look at your life and I want you to realize, man, Lord, I think I'm deluded. I believe, but help my unbelief because I realize my belief is intellectual and it hasn't changed me. Save me, Lord. Change me. Make me new. Put your spirit so I get on fire for you. I want fire on the sacrifice so that I live for you with passion and zeal and not just... Come to mess hall. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to what God does. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, 
he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Who's doing it? God is. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That we are being transformed. We are passive. We are being transformed from one glory to the next. And if you don't see that in your life, then you need to fear hell. Regardless of what you call yourself, regardless of how frequently you come to church, fear for your soul. There is no such thing as a non-following follower of Christ. That is a lie. And I think a lot of Christians today, professing Christians, think that they can just come and do the bare minimum of a mess hall attendance and think that, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Don't think it anymore. Don't, don't lie to yourself. Well, let's say you do know Christ. Praise God. Praise God for what God has done through you and serve him and pursue with more excellence everything he tells you to do. And as you seek to do that and seek to do it with all your heart, give God all the praise because believe me, no matter how much you sacrifice for the Lord, no matter how many years, even if you give your body to be burned for Christ, you're not going to get to heaven and go, well, I got gypped. I mean, that wasn't worth it. I mean, I, uh, I taught Sunday school for 40 years, and what, all I get is like an eternity with unimaginable blessings? <laughs> I would have rather had cable TV and a new car. You'll never think that. You'll never think that. God will never be your debtor. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Trust Him with all your might. And remember, you only need a little bit of faith in an all-powerful God to do all that he asks you to do. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this text. It is a rebuke to our selfish and indulgent lifestyles. We realize, Father, as we look at a text like this, that we need to have an attitude adjustment. You are not here to pamper to us. You are not here to make us at ease in a world that is hostile to you. You are not here to make us feel comfortable as we rebel against you and to save us though we will not follow Christ. Father, you are here to save us that we might walk in newness of life, that we might be born again, that we might be new creatures in Christ, that your grace has appeared instructing us to walk in holiness, to live righteously. Father, to be zealous for good deeds, to equip us for every good work, to give us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so when we too have done and continue to do all that we are commanded. Father, I pray that we would have the attitude, we are, we are unworthy servants, and we've only done that which we ought to have done. If there's somebody here, Father, and I'm sure there are, who realize they aren't following you, may you break their hearts now, and may they cry out to you, and just cry out to be changed, a lasting change, an everlasting change, a change that begins a new life that they have never thought possible. Save them 
Change them as only you can. We trust you to do it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.